the 37-year wait is over. American Pharoah, it's finally the one. American Pharoah has won the Triple Crown. This is unbelievable. Zenyatta, what a performance. One we'll never forget. What a race. What a sport. What a horse. Arrogate rocks in the Pegasus. Well, everyone, we are back on the TVG podcast. I'm Mike Joyce, and today we're going to have a little bit of fun with a good friend of mine in the voice of Santa Anita, Frank Miramati. He'll be joining us, um, talking about his career, talk about all things topical in the sport of horse racing. Um, And um, I'm going to try and delve into some of the uh, some of the origins of his career. And we're also going to put him on the stand and make him answer some questions. But first... It's time to take a ride on the outrage machine, boys and girls. I got to go on a rant here. So earlier this week, I'm sure all of you know that the real world known as Twitter had some news coming out about someone by the name of Dina Alberano. If you are unfamiliar with the story, then you clearly need to be more well-versed in social media. Dina Alberano had uh, taken it upon herself to rescue every single horse that ever made its way into a slaughter bin. She called herself, I care, I help. And she solicited donations by yelling and screaming and ranting and raving and sending tweets your way to make you sound like a despicable human being if you didn't send her money. Well, a story came out today in New Jersey that she was, in fact, fined $5,000 because over $300,000 of the money that she raised ended up in her personal account. This is not the smoking gun you think it is. This is not where everyone should be outraged. Let's not be morons here, people. We all knew from the outset, and she even said that she was not a charitable organization. She was not a bonded 501c3. So anything that you gave her to her GoFundMe was going to go into a de facto personal account because it wasn't a charity. There was no other place for it to go. Maggie Moss did great work in uncovering the inconsistencies in her stories and all the things that she had done wrong in the process. Now, Everyone wants to sharpen their pitchforks and burn her an effigy. I even heard people suggesting they just burn her, period. Not even an effigy for her sins against the animal. None of us really know everything that went on. It's not as if she didn't buy these horses. It's not as if she didn't get these horses out of slaughter. In fact, she was housing some of them in chicken coops. I didn't make that up. They were in chicken coops. And over $300,000 in her personal account, I did look up online, to build a commercial-sized chicken coop is about a quarter of a million dollars. So for all we know, she was just building another home for these horses she was rescuing from slaughter. They could not account for how much money actually went to rescuing horses. But here's the thing. This is why you have regulations. I know nobody likes regulations. They're expensive and they're cumbersome and they're no fun and they keep you from doing stuff. But they're there for a reason. Do I believe Dina Alberano is an evil person? Yes, she is Satan herself. Actually, I have no idea. And I don't think any of us really know. But we definitely want to string her up and and make an example of her in social media because in the court of public opinion, she is truly guilty. Now, she was guilty of something because she got fined $5,000. And that was mostly because she didn't list a charitable organization with the money. It went into a GoFundMe and then it went into her account and then she used that money for god knows what for all i know she got you know giant tattoos on her back of all the power rangers that she deemed fit and it cost her that much money who knows what she spent the money on but she clearly had in mind that this was a way to get money and what she did with that money was she rescued some horses 
Did she pay herself in the process? Probably. Did she feel entitled to? Yeah. Was it all evil? Maybe. But as my mother always told me, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I think it started somewhere. She used to do a podcast much like this with Steve Haskin, who's somebody I think all of us know and respect. And was the fleece pulled over his eyes? Perhaps. Somewhat. Or maybe he knew her and really did believe that what she was trying to accomplish was good. But did the and justify the means. The means is where it gets all murky. I'm on the board of a 501c3. Every decision we make financially goes through a committee. It's reviewed by a board and with good reason. It's to help us help ourselves, to save us from making poor choices with that money. Okay, we have 59 recipients for the PDJF. Everything we do affects all of them, not just one of them. And it's very tightly regulated and with good reason. So for those of you who are shocked and aghast that this money ended up in a personal account, there was no other account for it to go to. Did she do something wrong? Yes. Did she mean to do something wrong? Yes. Did she bully people about on social media? Yeah, I even retweeted her once because not really I believed in her message. I just thought she was a pain in the ass, and I thought it was the easiest way for her to stop being a pain in my ass. But I've never, ever ascribed to, uh, to the notion that GoFundMes were a good thing. It's GoFundMe, yeah, it's GoFundMe. A couple other letters there would probably be more appropriate. You never know what's going to happen to this money, and it's hard to trace. That's why you need to be an accredited chaired, charitable organization, whether it's a nonprofit or what have you, or a 501c3 like the PDJF, in order for people to know exactly how that money is being used. So it's low-hanging fruit. She's evil. She's terrible. What about the horses? What about the horses? Well, she did buy some from slaughter. I think the real question is, did she perpetuate horses going to slaughter? Probably. And I think that's why Maggie Moss got involved, because it's kind of this circle, right, where kill pens buy horses knowing they're going to get more money for them from people trying to do the right thing and save them. That's why if you really do care for the animal, you give to an accredited TAA bonded association, the Thoroughbred Aftercare Association or Karma or LRF Cares or something along those lines where they have the rules and regulations to work through in order to not do this. So in an effort to do something right, even if you say Dina Alberano had everything in her mind was good and her heart was pure and she was trying to save these animals, she was perpetuating a kill pen. Whether it was for good reasons or bad, she was perpetuating that. And that's why if you're not bonded, if you're not regulated, you can make these mistakes. These rules and regulations are there. The bylaws are there to protect Dina from Dina, to protect us from people like Dina. I don't care what her intentions were. What she did was wrong. I don't know how wrong it was, but I'm not going to go on some tirade against her as like, oh, do you know it ended up in a personal account? Yes. You should never give to a GoFundMe unless you personally know the person who puts the GoFundMe up. You should never give to one. There, it's it's insanity. I remember what was it twenty years ago? Somebody made a GoFundMe when it first came out, and they put a picture of a rabbit on it, and it said, "If I don't get ten thousand dollars, I'm going to kill this rabbit." Guess what? He raised over $10,000. I have no idea if that rabbit is alive or if he made Hassenpfeffer out of it. There's no way to track it. But if you gave to that GoFundMe, you're a moron. So, look, was it a bad thing? Yes, but we all should know better. If you need to take care of the animals, if you feel compelled to do so, there's ways to do it other than putting money in a GoFundMe with a picture of a decrepit animal in a kill pen because by giving that money to the kill pen, you are perpetuating the kill pen. It's very simple math here. Okay, I'm off my high horse. I mean, what do I know? At any rate, um, <clears throat> coming up next on this podcast, we're going to have uh, the voice of Santa Anita joining us, our good friend, Frank Miramati. Aren't you tired? 
tired of expensive cable packages? Now you can watch all of TVG's offerings in crystal clear high definition with the new Watch TVG app. Gain access to exclusive content, handicapping on demand, and TVG's greatest hits, including many award-winning features. Download for free now on Amazon Fire, Roku, and Apple TV. Or visit tvg.com slash promos slash watch for even more information. Well, the man joining me on the line, you know well from the booth at Santa Anita, Monmouth Park, amongst other racetracks. Uh, he is the voice of the great race place, and uh, his name is Frank Miramati. Frank, thanks for joining us. I'm honored to be on your podcast. All right, um, let's uh, let's get down to the uh, to the origin story here. That's the big thing with all the Marvel movies. It's the the origin story because I know Santa Anita is a racetrack that you have always coveted that job in the booth there. So so tell me what you know led to you wanting to be a track announcer, and then how that that journey has taken you to Santa Anita. Well, I guess the perfect story would be that I was in the stands and and you know had a set of binoculars and a tape recorder, but none of that is true. I became fascinated with track announcers at a very young age. I can't pinpoint the moment that I decided that is the career I wanted to pursue. But in looking back at my life, it's obvious that that's always what I wanted. But as a kid, I wanted to be a doctor. I just didn't realize that there was a lot of uh, educating that was necessary for that to happen. That's expensive schooling there. Yeah, it's just it was a minor issue that I wasn't very uh, uh, up to speed on. So... I just loved announcers from a very, very young age. My dad started taking me to the track and I always give my dad the credit, but it's true because the two of us spent a lot of days on our own, but it was really a family affair. My brother, Fred, three years older than myself and my mom as well. A lot of times we went together, we party of four to the racetracks, but my dad and I snuck away to increase that uh, exposure to the racing. And I just, uh, the first guy I remember is Harry Henson. What a legend. And uh, then Dave Johnson is very clear in my mind. And then eventually when Trevor came, I was in high school by that time. And when he first arrived, I was like many very much uh, questioning how Dave Johnson could be replaced by um, Trevor Demon. But in a short period of time, I learned that he could see things that others at least hadn't been able to describe live. And it, it was Trevor's arrival that really accelerated my actual, my love for the sport as well as my, you know, desire to be a track announcer. But I don't know the exact moment, Mike. It's not that perfect story that a lot of announcers have that they always knew it. But I can tell you, as sad as it looks when you look back at it, unless you become a track announcer, there were times I would make up fake races. I had old programs. I would write the charts and things of that nature, which are very alarming unless you become a track announcer later in life. Yeah, so, uh, believe me, at, at least... A lot of yeah. us have done alarming things that unless we walked this career path would have looked pretty, pretty crazy. Um, yeah. l- let me ask you this, though, because I, I know that you um, I know that you've you've always held Trevor Demon high on a pedestal. Did he change the way the track announcers apply their trade? And, and does it affect you and, and how you approach a race? Absolutely. He did. He, he came in with a new descriptive way of calling races. And, uh, and it's an opinionated way, but his opinion is almost exactly correct every time and so you can't really call it opinionated race calling but he would describe exactly what was happening and be able to tell people what they couldn't yet see and i became extremely fascinated and uh, marveled at his 
accuracy. And no question, that changed a lot of things for me. I used to listen to his replay show, which was a straightforward replay show. But even in the replay show, he would educate the fans as to what they had just seen. And he would sort of set the table and then describe how the table was set afterward and what happened. It, it was just a beautiful thing. And it was something that he took to a whole new level with an on-track radio station called K-Win, which you could only get at Santa Anita Park. And what happened when K-Win came out is, and a lot of the guys, your, your colleague Kurt Hoover was a big part of the launch of K-Win on Santa Anita. But what that did is it gave fans an opportunity to hear Trevor's thoughts shortly after the horses came on the track when they approached the gate, and then after the race, which you wouldn't hear on the PA system, but you would hear there, which took it from me going to the track with buddies being a top priority to me making sure I had my Walkman on was really all that mattered because I was basically living the day in Trevor's booth. And, and that was just such a fun experience for me. And it was a very enlightening experience for me. It, it totally changed my view of horse racing and I found myself agreeing with every philosophy that Trevor had. Whatever he would think, I just considered it fact. And uh, and so I just became what I believe is certainly his biggest fan. Yeah, well, Trevor's booth is now your booth and, and your journey – and I've gotten a you know a first first front row seat for this um, first hand exposure to the journey of Frank Miramati to Santa Anita. Um, a big part of your start and the, what put you on the map was the impressions. And I, I was actually reading that article in the Blood Horse about Jason Beam and the Beamy Awards, and they were talking to you, and you had said, "Look, at, at some point you gotta you know you have to put that behind you and start you know you have to be a serious race caller when the game's going on." So y- you've had to walk back the impression as part of your game and, and make it more serious is I, I, I just want to know where your mindset is. I mean, do the impressions ever come back? You said, unless management calls me up and says, Hey, we want you to do something fun. They're not coming out. That's been my philosophy. And it's Santa Anita park. I just can't imagine. I've actually called uh, an impression racer to at Santa Anita. In fact, when I filled in for Trevor in 2014 and 2015, one of the times Keith Blackpool came right into the booth and I did a Trevor right in front of him. Uh, we were standing side by side. He said, why don't you go ahead and do it? And so um, I have done it. And that was uh, quite a quite a fun experience. But yes, it all started with the impressions. There's no question that's what got me into the game. The first call I ever made was a call as Trevor Demon at Hollywood Park on Christmas Eve, 1992. I, I called two races. The second one, I did an impression of the late, great Harry Henson, who called there for 24 years. Alan Buckdahl, who was the voice of Oak Tree, called some Hollywood Park meets and was always like, you know, basically uh, the backup to Trevor uh, on any other circumstance after Trevor took over. In other words, if there were meets and if there were times when he had to go away or undercard a Breeders' Cup, et cetera, Alan was always the guy, very consistent, a very good man, lover of the sport, and uh, closed it out as Trevor. Arguably, my best call to this day was, was that particular race. But that's what got me going. There's no question about it. And it's something that I think the fans overwhelmingly if you were to ask all the fans what their thoughts on the impressions have been, overwhelmingly positive. As with everything in the world, there are going to be people who say, I don't like that, or there are going to be people who may express that they don't like it because they don't like something else about me. It's a good it's a good open door for someone to take shots, and I <laughs> certainly understand it. And you have to learn these things. You, you have to be able to grow thick skin. And, you know, I'm like most people in that we all want everyone to like what we do, but sometimes they're not going to like it. And and there are some people that have been against impressions, and I've been called out uh, by some 
you know, prominent people about it as well. But it certainly was something that got me into the game. I would have never gotten in as a track announcer without it because I just made a fluke call to Hollywood Park one day while Trevor was on vacation. And I don't think I would have made a second call if they hadn't come to the phone that one day. It was just a spontaneous moment. I was waiting for a paycheck at a sales job that I couldn't stand. And I was thinking to myself, I'd like to call a race at Hollywood Park. It's, it's really amazing how that whole thing took place. But somehow I got through to the president of the track and eventually convinced him to at least bring me in to show him I could do it. He brought me into the press box. That's the great Don Robbins, full brother to Tom Robbins of Del Mar. And uh, never have met Don to shake his hand, but I've certainly praised him for a long, long time. But rightfully so, because he gave me a shot. And of course, R.D. Hubbard owned the track, so he gave the final approval for that to happen. I mean, I have kind of a, a similar relationship with, with my approach to, to broadcasting because I've always tried to put levity and entertainment alongside horse racing. And I think both you and I have experienced that we have the highest per capita fund police of any industry in the world. Whenever you go off script a little bit, the, the criticisms come flying. So I know that you've had to face some of that throughout your career as well. No question. Uh, it has happened. And, and some of it I've, I've been okay with, and some of it I've had to kind of fight back about. And sometimes I think myself, how much would I want to hear an impression during a race that I had some money down on? And the answer is I wouldn't want to hear too much of it. Yeah, because I don't want to hear Rodney Dangerfield when I'm going through a complete torch fest and I'm tearing up vouchers left and right. Interestingly, on the fair circuit, uh, the late, great Luke Kripos, who was very close with my boss, Larry Schwartzlander, up on the fair circuit, thought that the best way to do it was to just do it once a day at the end of the day in the last race. And he suggested that to Larry. And then from then on, Larry asked me to do it. Well, the last race is the race where everyone's trying to close out their pick four, their pick now the pick five, back then the pick six, the last race of the day. And so there were some that looked forward with great anticipation to it. And there were others that are probably thinking, oh, my God, here comes a Rodney Dangerfield. I know I'm not going to catch here. So (laughs) I totally understand that mentality. Oh, and I'm sure with all the bad luck in this game, I mean, you can blame a million things and be like, I'm sure there's, you know, countless horse players out there that think, you know, your your call as Trevor Demon is the death of their pick four. They Believe me, I, I can totally understand and relate to where they're coming from. There are, th- there are sportscasters who are very popular that I can't stand when you get on, when, when, you, when you find that they're doing that particular game, I, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, oh man, this ruins the game. So I understand we all have tastes. And uh, it's something that some people don't like, and I understand it. And uh, but I but I've enjoyed it, and the fans love it, and I know that because to this day, when I run into fans, they talk about it, they ask about it, they love it, and they expect more of it. I feel like I <clears throat> excuse me, I feel like I could have expanded my repertoire. I, I think I just kind of had a list, and then it became you know it, it didn't grow where it could have because. For me, I can imitate so many different people that I know with hard work, I could have expanded that list uh, extensively, but I didn't, and that's okay. Yeah, You said you were working on an impression of me. Did you ever get that down? I, I, I have the timing down. I certainly know uh, I know how it works, but I don't, I don't have it down. I have some other ones that are in the laboratory, too, that are so close. But again, I haven't, I haven't gone in and, and fine-tuned it. But the thing about it is, when you're an impersonator, you learn... Or, or you get used to mannerisms and sayings and certain things. So I know what to expect. I could probably, on a TVG shift when they're going into the gate, I, I could probably give you a, a similar transcript to what's coming in the final stages before a race goes off. 
Uh, I know I could have done that with Gary Seibel because I worked alongside him for uh, several shifts and I knew it was coming. But those things just come naturally. And then the next key is to try to duplicate it. And believe it or not, one of the ways to do that, you have to look at somebody's mouth and the way it moves because that's the way the sound comes out. And I found that after a long time, I realized that that's one of the things that's very important. Yeah, I can see that so when you, you do your danger field. I can see, I can, I can see danger field in your face, like the way you, you hold, need, the way you hold like yeah, your you jowls to. in your cheeks. Like it's, I you absolutely can see that. It, it, it's what helps. It, it does help it. And then if you've ever heard someone else do an impression, uh, then then it's a lot easier to master. I learned my Marv Albert from a dear friend of mine named Steve, and uh, and he also did impressions of other people, including the harness collar, Jack Lee. And I came with a very poor version of that. Also bullet Bob Meyer. He had, he was an East coast guy, obviously. And I learned all that from him. And I didn't even know who Marv Albert was, but I used to watch the way our common friends responded to his Marv Albert impression. And, and then I eventually learned it. And then it, it becomes easier because you know what they're honing in on. So does, does your Marv Albert impression really lead you into a Kevin Harlan then? Cause they're virtually identical. It's funny you mentioned that because, uh, the, and I never want to say anything, but I, I don't like Kevin Harlan's call compared. That's that's the one guy I was thinking about, believe it or not, because I think that he's too similar to Marv Albert, and he's not. And that's not to put him down. And I always have to be very careful to respect the man who has he's certainly accomplished. He's not listening to this podcast. You can put him down. I hope he's not. But I, but what I'm saying is his cadence and such. It seems like it's it's learned from Marv. I don't know that he's ever acknowledged Marv. On the other hand, I am Eagle, who is a toned down version of Marv is everything I believe in. I love Ian Eagle as a, as a sportscaster, and it's very crystal clear. In fact, by some fluke about a year and a half or two ago in um, New Jersey, a friend of mine told me he knows Ian, and I had a chance to email him to just express to him how much I could hear the Marv, um, you know, the Marv, uh, whatever the word would be, uh, uh, influence in his, in his presentation, followed by, uh, you know, just the way he does things. It's just, Good, clean East Coast New York sports casting, and it's tremendous. Yeah, and he, but you know, even Bob Costas said when he was trying to break in, he was just doing a poor man's Marv Albert. I mean, that's that's how high on the pedestal he was as, as a broadcaster. Um, hey, he I want I want to I want to switch gears a little bit. So whatever you need. When you took the job at Santa Anita, and they announced you as the the next track announcer. One of the things they said was, you know, we want. Frank, because he, you know, he's someone we can put front and center, interact with the fans more. We want him to be more of the fabric of Santa Anita. And, um, you know, right after that is when, you know, all this, this horrible stuff started happening in Santa Anita with the breakdowns and the track closures. And there you are with this role that's probably expected to be more expansive of a track announcer than we're used to having here, almost anywhere in the sport, the way they described it. And I feel like you're a good person for that role because you do interact with the fans a lot. But how did that all play out from your perspective? How did you have to handle all these things that were going on? Because you have to call the races, you have to put a good face on it every day, but it could be really hard to do. Well, first of all, that role was uh, not clearly defined as to what was going to happen. I really never did get an incredible amount of direction, but I believe that that was an, a, a factor because I'm not shy and I like to get involved. And I, in fact, it's one of my favorite things because I'm just a fellow fan myself. Um, so I, I don't think that anything changed as a result of what happened at Santa Anita um, during that time frame. I just don't think that, that my role evolved at that particular time. And certainly it wasn't the time I wanted to you know, jump in and say, hey, I can handle all this stuff. Yeah. Um, it was a very difficult time, needless to say, for everybody involved. But 
as a lover of Santa Anita, I've always said that Santa Anita is not only my favorite racetrack, it's my favorite place on the planet. Um, very challenging time to go through, no question. And uh, well, there's also you have to, there's no question. You have to that, shake it off. I mean, you're 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 an employee of Santa Anita. TVG is very tightly allied with Santa Anita and the Stronic Group. So I mean, there, there's no questioning where your and my alliances lie here. But as as a gambler, if you can separate as a horse player, as a fan, but really, just, you know, specifically as a horse player and a gambler, they're making all these changes. The you know the CHRB instituted a new whip rule. They're trying to do away with you know medication. They're they're bringing Lasix back. Um, just as a fan, just sitting back and, and as a product that you can bet, I mean, do you think that these changes will ultimately do to a better product? Because in the short term, there's there's definitely growing pains. There's no denying it. There is growing pain, but Santa Anita, my philosophy on it is, and, and very sincerely, not just some company speech, this is my thing. You know how people always put on Twitter, opinions are my own, which yeah. I always find, I find that comical because who else's opinion are they? Yeah, exactly. Um I think they're very clear what, what your opinions are, but you have to be very careful with all things about tippy toeing into categories that you, especially when you're in a position of whatever it may, whatever we, we may want to call it in a sense, we are representing our employer whenever we start piping off. So we got to be careful about what we say, but I will from a fan. And my, my perspective is this, first of all, I'm very proud of Santa Anita for what they're doing because it's, you know, these are changes that are not easy to, to do. And I think that, Santa Anita has uh, set a standard that the uh, that other uh, industry players are following. And I think it's all good because it is essentially about getting racing cleaner and more safe and a better product visually. The optics have not been good uh, over this period of time of, of what has happened. So um, I think that there are growing pains. There are a lot of people that have uh, talked about and have, gone forward with setting up barns elsewhere but it's always easier to see that the grass is greener somewhere else at the end of the day i truly believe that santa anita park is the most beautiful venue in the country for watching horse races and enjoying horse racing and the record has shown that santa anita has put on some of the best and most successful shows in the history of the sport and if some of these changes make it uncomfortable for certain um, parties that don't want to participate here, others will come and fill that role. And in the end, Santa Anita will take maybe a, a tiny step back and a leap forward because this is not only the great race place, it's the greatest race place. And this is a time that, you know, it's been a time of crisis. I think we have admitted from the standpoint of a company that perhaps we didn't handle every situation perfectly, let me put in parentheses right there, understatement. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, let's, this is you and I talking, right? Yeah. And, uh, you well, know, Aiden we, we Butler had, said we, the we, same thing when I, I had him on the last podcast. He said the same thing. I mean, he, and, okay, and, and there he, you go. He, I love Aiden. Yeah. I absolutely love him because he has passion. He's a hard worker. He's dedicated. I've had, I've gotten very close to him in a very short period of time. And yeah. I love everything that he represents because he is all about doing the right thing. And he's a man with the experience, but more importantly, he's out there every morning at Clockers Corner, shaking hands, looking around, taking care of business. He's working very hard, and he has one goal, and that is to do the right thing by Santa Anita. And, and, and I think he should be applauded. Well, I and look, I know the changes need to be made, and I think that you know the medication changes and the you know emphasis on safety is great. I hate the whip rule. I personally just 
you know, I, I don't like regulating the whips and telling jockeys when when they can and can't use it because I think that that is a safety issue in and of itself. And I pressed Aiden on the hill because I would love to see them open up the hillside. But he, he gave me a great answer on the hill. He said, look. What was the answer on the hill? The answer on the hill was he goes, look, we have a myriad of things we're dealing with. He goes, and whereas running down the hillside is equally as safe, if not safer than running around the turf oval, by st- you know statistically, it's 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 a safe surface, right? He goes, we can't afford a mishap on the hill because if I bring the hill back and that gets caught up in the zeitgeist of what's going on, and then something unfortunate does happen, there's no more hill ever again. He's like, so right now we just with everything else we're dealing with, we can't bring it back. And I think he's right, and I I hate that decision because I like the hill and I think it's why we have one of the best turf courses in the world is the hillside turf course. But I get it. If he, I was in his position, could I could I say that I would make a different decision? I mean, I can I can say it from afar. I can armchair quarterback it all I want, but I get it. When you have all these other things I got to deal with, you know, he's he said like can we really afford to make even if it's the right choice, the optics of it. You go back to the optics. We can't have the optics of us making another mistake. I'll tell you one thing as a track announcer, first of all as a fan, my favorite race of all time and I said I would be very difficult to handle in a down the hill Jeopardy category. I don't think anyone would beat me down the hill. Maybe <laughs> some of the, some, maybe some of the, the top writers or guys that have been in the press box. That's about it. Uh, but and and no one has enjoyed the hill racing and handicapping the hill as much as me. If there was ever a break I caught as a tra- track announcer, it's the uh, the races not being down the hill. That is a very very difficult assignment uh, down the hill. It's not easy to call. And I, I don't ever meant- want to hear you say they go behind the trees again. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly. Uh, I was told that early on that that's not a good line. That's not a but, good line. Uh, and Trevor told me it's about two seconds. He was trying to explain to me how to handle that, and that from a time. And I was, I was, I was finally figuring it out. And now there's no hill, but there is that moment when you have to just peek over to the television. It, it has to happen. I, I'm, and, uh, I'm confident. Confident once the ship is righted here in Southern California, and I think we're going in the right direction. Um, that that hillside turf course will once again be a bane in the existence of your track announcing duties. There you go. All right, we. Um, I, I got a thing here. I'm bringing. I'm bringing back a segment I used to do on the television show. And I've changed it up a bit, but we're going with the same title. We're doing Cinco to Thinko. All right, we've got five questions for you. There are wrong answers, and um, it's it's like a quiz show format. I'm going to ask. You're going to answer. You ready for this? Okay. I I think I need to answer. Okay. Cin- I, I don't I, I don't like softballs. I mean I like. Real point. Is, I mean, I know you're not Mike Wallace, but you're a good interviewer. Oh, this, is, this these are these are it's it's a quiz, my friend. You and you can fail. Let's uh, All go. Right. All right. Question number one: Who is the third greatest jockey of all time? The third greatest jockey of all time. The third greatest jockey of all time. Third greatest jockey of all time. U.S. jockeys only. North American jockeys. Only. I guess I'm going to have to go. I mean, that's so difficult because there are so many good ones, but uh, third greatest. Hang on. This is taking a long time. I can't be favorite. Third greatest. Third greatest. Wow. Someone's going to get offended heavily right. in this situation. Right. This is a bad deal. Uh, third greatest jockey of all time would be... I'm going to go with Bill Hartrack. Close, but no cigar. The correct answer is Eddie Arcaro, and we would have accepted oh. George Wolf. Oh, first of all, I was actually, I thought it's just my opinion. Are you just, what, what are you basing this on? Just basing it off of my opinion. I am the, oh. I am the final authority on all of these questions. I almost said Eddie Arcaro, as a matter of fact, but because my buddy Ed Etheridge presented an incredible video at the Flamingo Breakfast called The Master and the Millionaire with Eddie and Arcaro in 1948, I, I couldn't put him in the three hole. 
Yeah, it's, but, it's, uh, it's, 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 I thought it's, Eddie might be upset. One and two are no particular order. In my order, it's Shoemaker, Pinkai, and then Eddie Arcaro. All right. So you could go if you said, and we would accept George Wolf, but he, you know, he, he died at such a young age and we, you know, I never got to see him. So I didn't see Eddie Arcaro either, but he's a little more recent. All right. Question number right. two, there is a right answer. And I did this because I saw that you had brought a pizza to um, Scott Hazleton from Geno's East. They opened one up in the Valley, right? In Burbank. Oh, you saw that. That's yeah. good. Okay. So when you're ordering Chicago style pizza, which do you order? Do you order the pan do you order the deep dish or do you order stuffed? Well, I think the correct answer for Chicago people is not the same as me. I think the Chicago people will, will emphatically state stuffed. Yes, correct. I w- you are I right. Wouldn't, I, I, would not, I would not be guessing that, nor would I be ordering that. But keep <laughs> in mind, I don't put toppings. I don't like toppings. True. And in fact, I would like light cheese on my Chicago pizza. But uh, I'll, give, uh, I'll give credit to Scott Ehrlich for clarifying that uh, years ago. Uh, up in Northern California. We got to give credit where credit is due. And it's yep. only because of his overwhelming preach on stuff that I know that answer. That's because brilliant. he did introduce me to Zelda's pizza, which made my three years in Sacramento. Very, very tolerable. All right, that, that, that's great. I, I have to give a shout out to Scott Ehrlich too. Um, all right. Question number three. And the, the number three is important here. Name three on air racing personas that made their TVG debut with yours truly. With Mike Three Joyce. that made their TV. Well, of course, I did. Yes. So there's one. Ding, 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 ding. Do there's I, one. Do, do I count as a, a personality? Yes, you absolutely do. Two, I would say Les Onaka. No, Les Onaka was on oh. the air before me. That's you get, sad. You, you, it's like, uh, it's like um, what's that show? Is it the Pyramid? You get two X's. The oh, third I, X I have back. another one. I have another one. What? Brittany Urton. No, that's actually I, that was actually a really everyone thought that because I mentored her for an entire summer at Del Mar to teach her how to report. So you got two X's. There's a lot here. There's like five or six, and they're kind of five obscure. or six racing personalities racing that made their TVG debut. Not I understand TVG uh, well, debut. I'm with, with TV. I, I have not I have not mentioned a non TVG yeah. person yet. By the way, okay, TVG debut. Kurt Hoover could be. Oh, I think you're actually right. I think he actually. Did come on TVG with me for the first time. He could have. Okay, I'll give you that. I'll give you Kurt because there's uh, there's there's a possibility Kurt. it's true. TVG. Debut. I'll rattle off a bunch of them. You'll it, it'll 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 crack you up. No, let me give you one more. Hold on before you go. Don't don't uh, we want we don't want to bore the audience waiting for this drum roll. But let me just. <laughs> I'm still thinking. The drummer thinking, died. Think, what about Christina? Christina did not. Christina did not. But you could have gone Michelle. You you could have gone Mr. B. His first TVG Mr. show. Mr. B was you? Yeah, oh, I should have guessed it. We were, on yeah. the, we were on the set together. Yeah, Mr. B. We started Greg Wolf and Mr. B. Okay. Yeah, so Mr. B made his debut with me. Um, there's a lot that are no longer um, doing television anymore, like Rhonda Collins, um, Jessica York. Yeah, there's a bunch of them like that. Um, I'm trying to think of some other ones. Um, right. Oh, you know who? It, Steve Rothblum, Corey Nakatani. Um, oh, what about uh, Scotty Pick Six? Scotty pick six. Yes. Yep. Scotty McKeever. You could have gotten Scotty McKeever as well. All right. We're going to keep it. We're going to keep this one talking about me. Um, question, of course. question number four. I'm glad you came on my show. Uh, which one, That's of, what it's all about. which one of these celebrities was my first celebrity interview when I first started reporting at TVG? Was it Jennifer Beals of splash dance fame? Was it Joe Pesci of God knows how many Scorsese film fame? Or was it former major league baseball all-star Wally Joyner? That's a great 
you know, trying to read from the way you, I, I say it's definitely not Joe Pesci from that, from no. that introduction. It's not Joe it's Pesci. Not Joe right. Pe- I would immediately eliminate him just because of the lack of a, comp- of a, you know, yeah, the way you just, the way you did that. I've never actually met big. Joe Pesci. Yeah, All the, exactly that. Never. Too. Yeah. Uh, I guess I got to go with Wally because of the way you seemed very excited. Ding, ding, ding. Wally Joyner. I was covering a sale. He owns quarter horses. He had a horse in the champion of champions this year. Um, uh, He he owns it with Mark Skeen. I actually was covering the first on-air bid I ever did was covering the PCQHRA sale, which is now the Los Alamitos equine sale. And Wally Joyner was, he had the sales topper. And so that was the first guy. He was actually my first interview ever. Forget celebrity interview. My first interview ever. That was bad poker because it was very obvious from the inflection that it was wild. Yeah. Okay, and then for the final question, this is the Kent or Corey bonus question. So the answer, Kent or Corey, Kent or Corey bonus question. The answer to this question is either Kent DeStormo or Corey Nakatani. All right, this is the final question. Which jockey once called into a show that I was hosting live to dispute over the phone on our air an analysis of his ride? I'm gonna here's the here's the guess. I'm gonna guess. Most people would be wrong. I think most people would guess Kent DeSormo because we know of his Twitter antics. I'm going to guess Corey Nakatani. Oh, you should have gone with most people. It was Kent DeSormo. And the okay. best part I mean, about that, it was... That was it, too obvious. Yeah, that was too obvious. The best part about it was it was a ride, I believe, in Louisiana. This is like 2004, okay? It was like at, at the fairgrounds, and he got back to the jocks room, and we were talking about it, and he immediately picked up the phone. It was me and Rich Perloff, and he called the booth. I don't know how he had the number for the booth, but he called the booth, and sure. then he came on the air and proceeded to absolutely take us apart and take us to I task. would have guessed 90% would vote for Kent. But then again, once I think about it, Corey would have visited you in person, and I promise you wouldn't have brought it up again. Yeah, exactly. I would have seen him face to face. He would have driven to the studio, Corey. Exactly. Got All a right. couple words for you. Frank, uh, thank you so much, man. This has been a blast. I can't uh, I can't thank you enough for joining us here. I'm uh, I'm here for you all the time, Mike, and you know I'm a huge fan of yours. Thank you do a fantastic you. job. Hey, have fun up there in the in the booth as uh, I, I know having that job at Sanity was a special one for you and I got to tell you you're doing a great job and we all love your calls. Thank you. Stop up and say hello. Will do. Ladies and gentlemen, Frank Miramati from Santa Anita as uh, he was kind enough to join us here on the TVG podcast. I'll be uh, back with a uh, quick wrap-up of our program. Liking the TVG podcast? Me too. As a true fan, you won't want to miss a beat. So be sure to subscribe and follow along on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and more. Be the first to hear about new and upcoming episodes and get a leg up on some inside information. The TVG podcast. Available now on your favorite streaming services. Well, for our final segment here, um, I'm going to play a little game. And this is the game. If if I ruled the world of horse racing, if I was the racing czar, what would I do? Well, they've just announced pre-entries or nominations or whatever you want to call it for the Saudi Cup. So in Saudi Arabia, they're going to have eight gajillion dollars of money on the line for purses for horses to fly all over the world. It's another gigantic purse handicap race in the early stages of the year trying to lure horses from retirement and that one final cash grab before they go to the breeding shed a la the Pegasus World Cup that was just reduced to a purse of $3 million, from the $10 million to the $12 million, and then the Dubai World Cup, which is $10 million. 
look, I think all of these things are great. They're great initiatives. I actually loved the way the Pegasus panned out the first couple of years with the purchasing of spots and jockeying for position and deal making. It just wasn't sustainable, which is unfortunate because it was super exciting. So now the Stronach Group has a $3 million handicap race that's essentially occupying the spot on the calendar that the Don used to, used to have. And now all these horses are going to go to the Middle East for the... Saudi Cup, and then they're going to stick around and go to the Dubai World Cup. The Dubai World Cup is one of my favorite events in the world. If I ruled the racing world, what I would do is I would try to get the big cap back to a role of prominence. Instead of running for $3 million in January in the Pegasus Cup, I would have that winged horse fly that purse money to Santa Anita and make the big cap $3 million. Why? Well, because California needs a shot in the arm right now. And it's one of the greatest races in the history of our sport and has a history behind it that even in this day and age when it's been downgraded from its grade one status and it's no longer a million dollars, it still captures the imagination of all the racing fans here in California. And I think that's what we need to capture the imagination of racing fans the country over. Hey, but that's just my opinion. What do I know? I just wear makeup and talk about little men riding horses in circles. Thanks for joining us on the TVG podcast. Next week, you're not going to want to miss it. I'll be sitting down with Hall of Famers Gary Stevens and Mike Smith and exclusively interviewing them about how many fights they got into in the jocks room. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.